Hey, I'm Matt Ruby. And I'm Rob Kramer. And welcome to the fifth episode of Hell and Wellness. And I am a comedian and a seeker and a psychedelic explorer. And also I have a finely tuned bullshit detector. I love that. And I'm a tech entrepreneur and a writer who's been kind of delving into health and wellness for many decades now. I used to chase every type of guru you can imagine, always always looking for someone to help uh, sort of make me happier, make me healthier. And here we are 25 years later. And something tells me that anyone, Matt, who claims to be a guru, almost definitely not a guru. Yeah, it's uh, it's quite a riddle, that one. And it's just uh, something you see all the time in the wellness and spirituality space. There's all this pretension and a lot of nonsense going around. And that's sort of the purpose of this podcast is to, you know, in an entertaining way, help people separate what are the actual miracle cures from the snake oil that's out there. And we're going to be like, you know, are things hell? Are they well? We're like the uh, Siskel and Ebert of health and wellness. There you go. And in this episode, we're going to be talking about some interesting topics. We're going to be talking about Nonviolent communication. We're going to be talking about apple cider vinegar, and we're going to be talking about the life-changing magic of tidying up by Marie Kondo. Let's get into it. And quick note, we are not doctors. This is not medical advice. Don't take us that seriously and change your life and inject things or anything like that. We're here to entertain you, to give you our perspective on the world of wellness. So please, before you do anything serious, check with the doctor. So Rob, I've been known to not be the most gentle with my communication style. I tend to be direct. I don't do politeness very well. I don't massage things very well. I hang out with stand-up comedians a lot who say the most awful things to each other, and it's just a normal sort of way of life. And I think that's helpful in some ways, but sometimes it can uh, be challenging and maybe problematic within relationships. Is that something you can relate to at all? I can relate to, and uh, I would say I'm a um, probably an equal offender of those kinds of things. I've hopefully gotten better over time. Yeah. So, And I was talking about this with my therapist, uh, and she encouraged me to uh, read a book called Nonviolent Communication by Marshall B. Rosenberg. Have you heard of this book, Nonviolent Communication? I actually have heard about it, and I've heard about it from my ex-wife. That's for another time in another episode. Fair enough. I'm, I'm intrigued already. Well, it was in the context of relationships that my therapist recommended it to me also. And uh, it's interesting. I will say, right off the bat, the act of engaging in nonviolent communication seems somewhat violent if you tell someone that you're doing it. If you're like, look... I would like to engage in nonviolent communication with you. It already seems like a pretty aggressive thing. You're already just coming out of the gate saying, look, what I'd really like to say is something violent, but instead I'm going to read this book and try implementing these techniques instead. So out of the gate, there's something a little bit not in alignment with the approach. Uh, but let's talk about what the actual approach is that that Marshall is advising here. Do you have an example of, of a recent you know, spat or disagreement or argument you got in or someone who really ticked you off recently, and maybe we can use that as an exercise, Rob? Sure. Let's see. I probably said something um, violently nonviolent to my wife, um, current wife, that is, about uh, 24 hours ago. And I think I probably said, 
Can you try listening better? Okay, so give me some context. Uh, so what happened that led up to this moment? What, what did she do that aggravated you? I was telling her about some plans we were making. I thought she acknowledged it. And then two hours later, she completely forgot what I'd said. And I probably got ticked off because I'd been through this before. And I said, can you try listening better? Okay, so now at the heart of nonviolent communication is this process of uh, sort of four steps which is one, noting the thing that uh, has upset you or has you know ticked you off or that you're trying to address. Two is talking about how that thing made you feel and describing it and naming it. Three is what is the underlying need that you have that it has led to that feeling. And then four is the request for what you want to be different in the future. So in this example, it'd be like, uh, you know, I asked you to get ready two hours ago and I noticed that you're not ready yet. And that makes me feel frustrated because I need to feel like when we've agreed to do something at the same time that I've been heard and that that's actually going to happen. So I request that in the future, when you agree to do something in two hours, that you do it at the right time. So that is the general approach that you are supposed to take. And there's things that I like about it. I, I like that it takes you out of that sort of like immediate sort of like, I'm mad or I'm pissed off or you, you always do this or you always do that kind of thing or I'm, you know, you're being a jerk or something like that. And it gets at, here's the way I'm feeling and this is why I'm feeling that way. So I always like anything that gets you like one level deeper underneath whatever that emotion is. I think there's a lot of like sort of meditation concepts built into this communication style. You're not just lunging at your feelings. You're trying to get at like, what is the thing underneath that feeling and that originated it? So I think there is something healthy about it. And I totally get, you know, the positives. But I also, for me anyway, it seems so formulaic that uh, I almost feel like I'm talking to a child or something. Like I could see it being very effective if you if you are in a, a parent or a teacher or someone talking to a child. Also in the realm of, you know, maybe sort of, you know, negotiating a fight between people uh, or dealing with people who have, you know, mental disorders or something like that, or people who don't use their words well. But like, it's very difficult for me to engage in this mode without thinking that I'm talking down to someone or that I'm just sort of, you know, being in uh, like, I'm, I'm being like in a school teacher mode, which is just unnatural for me because I'm like, can't we just all be adults and just like get to the point and say what we think? Um, but maybe that's being violent. So I have a feeling we have similar experiences. We may have grown up in similar families. I don't know about you, but in my family, the way feelings and thoughts were communicated, if they were um, super intentional and pe most of us were impatient, was to yell at each other. Like we just yelled it out. And somehow yelling became this sort of this, this norm for how we communicated. So um, probably not the best sort of substrate for uh, teaching nonviolent communication. But I as well agree, I feel like while it has incredible benefits in terms of how it's described and how you're describing it, and I've tried it a little bit, as I said in my last marriage, which obviously goes to how well I succeeded at that, <laughs> um, but, um, but it feels like it's this meta conversation. It's like we're communicating, but we're sort of communicating in these abstract kind of multidimensional ways. And uh, to your point, like, we've gotten so soft. We've gotten to this point where we can't just come out and say it without everyone's feelings being hurt. Now, some of us are a little bit more abrasive and aggressive than others. So probably for those of us who are like that, um, it's probably better to try a little nonviolent communication. But I think that uh, it goes to a deeper 
issue in society, which, you know, stems from political correctness to sort of helicopter parenting and, you know, not letting kids skin their knees. It's like we can't get skinned in a conversation. So who knows? Maybe it's something we just need to do a control alt delete and all learn how to nonviolently communicate. Yeah. I mean, I think there is probably like once you get the hang of it, you could probably like do a a, a quicker version or a cliff notes version of, of some sort. But it's interesting you bring up the yelling example because I didn't come from a yelling family. My dad was pretty much just repressed every emotion and didn't say anything, you know, unless he had to, basically. Uh, And my mother was more of a daydreamer and drifter and sort of like wasn't always present and was not a yeller either. But recently I I got in a dispute with someone who was yelling at me. And uh, all right, this is my girlfriend. I'll just come out and say it. (laughs) And she's yelling at me. And I tried to like, so like, I noticed you're yelling at me and that makes me feel freaked out because I need to feel like my partner is like treating me with like in a way that I I feel like we're in this together like I'm like we're partners and not enemies so uh, I request that you not yell at me and just articulate how you feel at a at a quieter volume which had uh, mixed effectiveness let's be honest but at least for me like it's some path for when I'm feeling frustrated or don't know exactly how to articulate, you know, or navigate, you know, a fight of some sort or a dispute, at least gives a roadmap for like, well, at least here's something to try. And if nothing, and this is like also something I find beneficial with therapy is like, in real life, I'm like, well, look, I tried what the book said. I did what my therapist told me, like, at least I did the right thing. And it's not always going to work 100%. But like, I like knowing at least like, okay, well, I went, I went to the coach, and he gave me this play and I ran it maybe it didn't work. Maybe we still turned the ball over, but like, at least I ran the play I was supposed to run. So on some level, I feel like I'm, I'm getting closer to something, uh, even when it doesn't work. I'm going to maybe put you on the spot here, Matt, because we had a communication encounter relatively benign earlier in the day on, on Slack. And I'm wondering if uh, what I'm about to share with you was a form, was a technique of nonviolent communication. I responded to something that you had sent me about the best meditation cushion on earth. And I said, oi, there's a huge riff with this one. If it simultaneously performs fellatio, I'll buy it. And you said, LOL, my preference is for no dick jokes moving forward too easy. And I said, are you scolding me for making a dick joke? Ha ha. And you said, I don't scold. I gentle nudge like this pillow. So take it away, Mr. Nonviolent Communicator. No, that, that's pretty violent. But like to me, <laughs> okay. well, the other side of it is like, I think violent communication sometimes is a form of respect. Like when I'm hanging out with all like my comedian friends or like buddies of mine who are like I've known since college, like I'll just say what I think. Like there's something about that uh, dynamic of like, oh, wait, I think you can take this. This is fine. We're not we're not enemies. We're allies. Everything's cool. Like there's this foundation of uh, support there that I feel makes sort of jumping through these hoops unnecessary. But like if I and also I was typing, you know, this was over Slack. But yeah, like uh, the right way to uh, engage with it, uh, according to Dr. Rosenberg, uh, would be like, yeah, I noticed uh, you suggested that we make a fellatio joke in in the episode. Um, and that has me slightly concerned because I need to think that we're not like just relying on lowbrow humor and stuff that's like bathroom humor and sex stuff that's kind of hacky. So I request that we don't, you know, make that fellatio joke as we talk about it. 
So would this be an example of practicing nonviolent communication if in my response to what you just said, I said, blow me? <laughs> I'm going to have to ask the doctor, but I'm going to guess no. But that does tie in with, okay, so what is the other person supposed to do when you initiate this, which is a good segue, because what you're supposed to do is repeat back what you're hearing or what you think the person's needs are. So you, you could conceivably be like, uh, so it sounds like you're not wanting me to do any jokes that relate to sex during the podcast. Uh, and then you could be like, you know what, but I'm just a guy who loves sex jokes. That's who I am. It's in my DNA. So uh, you can reject that request or you could, you know, note, note it and follow through on it. And uh, you know what, actually, we, let's play a clip because there's an example that he gives in the book and uh, there's a YouTube video where he talks about it. And this is him uh, at a refugee camp, I believe somewhere in the Middle East. Uh, and there was like uh, tear gas canisters or, or some sort of weaponry that had made made in the USA on it at, at this refugee refugee camp. And so there was a lot of antagonism as he, he, an American goes into this refugee camp and someone calls him a murderer. And then this is what happens within that follow-up conversation. So when this guy calls me murderer, hearing that I'm an American, I tried to hear what is the guy feeling? And I said, sir, are you furious? And then I tried to hear his needs. Are you needing a different kind of support from my country than you're getting? And he looks at me in a kind of a stunned way. Apparently, that's not the way people respond to him usually when he screams at them. He said, you're damn right. We don't have sewage. We don't have housing. Why are you sending these weapons? So I said, well, then that makes it clear why you'd be so aggravated. If you don't have these basics and you get these weapons sent over here, I can see that you, your needs are for some other kind of support. He said, do you know what it's like to live under these conditions for all these years? He said, so you'd like me to understand just how desperate it can be even for one day, let alone for many years. So I, I heard what was alive in the guy, not what he thought I was, a murderer. I didn't say, I ain't killed anybody. I tried to hear what was going on in him. And when he trusted that I sincerely cared what he was feeling, what he was needing, he could start to hear me then when I said, look, uh, I'm frustrated right now because I came a long way to be here. I want to offer something. And I'm worried now that because you got me labeled as an American, you ain't going to listen to me. He said, what do you want to say to us? So he, he could hear me then. So I think that's like a good example of like if one side is really trying to escalate and ramp things up and get it to an antagonistic place how you can use this sort of technique to just sort of like mirror their feelings and almost like judo it of like, instead of like going to combat with them, sort of like, oh, well, this is what I'm hearing you're saying. This is what I feel like you probably need. And like how much, and I think what that taps into is a lot of times when people are angry or upset, a lot of times a huge part of that is that they just don't feel like they've been hurt and how, how impactful that can be to just be like, I hear you, I understand this is how you're feeling and this is why and, and the power that comes along with that. And I do think that's important. I would agree with that. You know, this reminds me of um, Harville Hendricks uh, and his books, Getting the Love You Want. In that last said marriage, the one that did not go work out, um, there is a bit of a sort of using these techniques. We did it in that marriage um, where it's sort of a fake it till you make it. So it feels unnatural in the beginning because like you're doing these unnatural forms of communication. Um, at the same time, if you can get to the point where it just happens naturally and you really are listening to someone, because to your point, uh, we just want to be heard and most of us talk over each other quite often, um, then I think it can be effective. But I can't imagine, you know, um, 
in a sense, artificially communicating like this all the time. So is there is there a point where you actually get to a natural sort of uh, communication style that doesn't feel like you're paying attention to the technique? Well, it sounds like you would feel like you would get frustrated if you had to practice this technique over and over again. Well, I mean, I think it no, I think of it no uh, more, no less than practicing guitar or piano. There's a point at which, in the, you know, it's it's frustrating. And then all of a sudden you break through and, you know, you're riffing and you're improvising. So, you know, you I'm a believer in scales and I'm a believer in technique. So you'd be into doing it at first, but over time, you would probably like want to lessen how much you do it. Obviously, I've never done it over time, but I would hope that it would integrate more into the flow of our natural conversations. Well, what I'm hearing from you is that it's important that things are integrated. I can see what you're doing, Matt. I can see. It's very... <laughs> is that chapter six or chapter four? Man, Line... I'm, I'm, I'm getting the PhD level on this one. I, I don't know what his answer would be. I do think, especially if, you know, within a partnership or some other way where it was being practiced with each other, that there would start to be a shorthand and you would probably not have to kind of be so foundational and building block uh, about it all the time. Um, at least that would be my hope. So what do we think? Is this, uh, is this a hell or is this a well? I have mixed feelings about it because, you know, like I said, it definitely feels a little bit almost childish at times. But I think in our current culture and sort of like this, I feel like a big need for de-escalation. That seems to be like a, a, a need that we have in our society right now. And I, and in, you know, it, just for me personally, within you know how I conduct my relationships, I, I think it, it can be helpful. So I'm going to go ahead and give it well. Yeah, I would say that clearly it feels intentionally like a like a well. Uh, it feels to me a little bit like hell ish along the way, but but perhaps worth the journey to get to uh, to the well. So I'll give it a I'll give it a qualified well. So Matt, off and on for many years, I have sort of had a flirtatious relationship with apple cider vinegar. Have you ever tried this this stuff, apple cider vinegar? I've used it uh, when cooking occasionally, like uh, maybe on some Brussels sprouts or something like that. But I, I'm I'm a little bit of a apple cider vinegar virgin. Well, it is um, good for cooking for sure. Not something that. Um, uh, one should drink straight, uh, or you might actually uh, cut off your larynx and vocal cords. But um, let me tell you a little bit about a apple cider vinegar, and I'm going to talk to you a little bit about uh, Dr. Uh, Braggs, uh, Paul Braggs, who is kind of the man who popularized it in the 20th century. So basically, um, apple cider vinegar, it's a popular home remedy. And, and people, it turns out, have used it for centuries for cooking, as you describe, and medicine. Um, lots of people, like Paul Braggs, who we're going to learn about in a moment, um, he, uh, he basically was a big proponent of its uh, sort of health benefits. And um, some of its sort of health properties are it's been uh, proven scientifically, apparently, um, to include antimicrobial, uh, antioxidant effects. And um, it also, uh, as evidence has suggested that it may offer health benefits such as aiding weight loss, uh, reducing cholesterol, 
uh, lowering blood sugar levels and improving the symptoms of diabetes. So um, first I want to talk a little bit about some of the actual benefits. So four, five, six, maybe. So it's, it's really high in health benefits. Um, let me first tell you how it's made. So it's kind of a two-step process. The manufacturer exposes crushed apples to yeast, which ferments the sugars, and then it turns them into alcohol. And then they add bacteria, yes, bacteria, to further ferment the alcohol, turning it into an acetic acid, uh, the main active compound uh, in vinegar. So that's why it's called apple cider vinegar. So then this acetic acid gives vinegar its strong sour smell and flavor. And researchers believe that this acid is responsible for apple cider vinegar's health benefits. Um, so what are some of the things? Well, apparently it can kill harmful bacterias. Um, vinegar can help kill pathogens, including bacteria. And people have traditionally used this vinegar for cleaning and disinfecting. Not so much. I mean, unless you're doing the hydroxychloroquine uh, version of Trump's, uh, uh, you know, kill COVID, uh, which maybe he even tried that in the White House. Who knows? Um, treating nail fungus. This is a good thing, especially for middle-aged men like me. Uh, lice, warts, even ear infections. Um, and uh, turns out that Hippocrates, the father of modern medicine, used vinegar to clean wounds um, more than 2,000 years ago. So it's been used as a, f a food preservative, et cetera, et cetera. Then it's good for, you know, lowering blood sugar levels and managing diabetes. It's good for maybe some weight loss. And uh, they even say that it improves heart health in animals, although I've never tried it on my dog. Who knows? If uh, confronted, maybe I should sort of uh, intravenously treat them with apple cider vinegar. But what I really want to talk about is this guy, Paul Bragg. And you've probably seen this in your um grocery store. There's apple cider vinegar. It says Bragg at the top. Uh, he was this um, lifelong advocate for healthy living. Uh, he was, some folks believe he was a bit of a quack. Um, uh, the Bureau of Investigation, the American Medical Association, issued an article on Bragg back in the 1930s, which uh, stated that he was a good, he was a food fattest and sexual rejuvenator who was debarred from uh, all of the um, sort of medical journals. Now, he wasn't a doctor, but they, the AMA really dismissed Bragg as a charlatan. Now, they felt that like he held these pseudoscientific views about dieting and disease. Coupled with the fact that if you do a little research on Bragg, there's a couple of things that come up and don't add up. Well, one of the things is he was apparently born in, you know, uh, 1850, what was it, 1851, but it actually says he was born in 1854, so he lied about his age a little bit. And then the other thing is that um, uh, Bragg's apparently, his, his, his former daughter-in-law, according to official, official records, um, who's taken over um, his health empire, um, apparently he claimed to have cured her of like some really nasty diseases. So the guy really doesn't have an incredible reputation sort of from the last century, but it turns out that there's a lot of science that backs up the health benefits of apple cider vinegar and, and Bragg's, which has many different products, include apple cider vinegar. Um, turns out that they actually do help cure many of these things that I've talked about and help with um, antimicrobial and, um, 
and, and bacterial infection. So I've been taking it off and on. I actually feel better. It certainly changes the pH balance of your, of your body. It actually turns it more alkaline, which is a good parent state for not fostering other, you know, diseases in the gut. Uh, but I find it actually, especially on our hell and wellness, um, uh, show, I find it interesting that on one hand, we're here exploring quacks or people who really are doing amazing things in their lives. And um, we've got someone like Braggs, who's this controversial figure. But as it turns out, as the decades go on, all the things he was talking about and he was a proponent of turns out to be scientifically true and proven. So it's a little bit of a conflicting thing. I'm a big proponent of it. I like it. You got to mix it with something, some kind of juice or tea or water or whatever. But um, I recommend taking some apple cider vinegar every now and then to kind of just stimulate the uh, the gut you know, microbiome and also to perhaps help you with some ailments that you might be uh, experiencing. So I'm curious, like, how do you consume it? And in what ways have you felt better, do you think, because of it? So one of the ways to consume it is it's kind of like, you know, one part apple cider vinegar, which happens to be highly concentrated. You obviously would not want to drink straight vinegar, even though this is cut with apples uh, and sugar. Um, And you, I would say about one part apple cider vinegar, maybe six to eight parts water or some other kind of dilutive type juice. I find that when I have sort of upset stomachs or maybe a little acid reflex or these kinds of things, a little a little apple cider vinegar will sort of change the pH of my of my gut and voila, it goes away and I feel good. The other thing is I'm a big believer, and once again, I have zero proof of this. So as you said at the top of this episode and others, we are not doctors, do not follow our advice. But my anecdotal experience is that um, when I'm consistently drinking apple cider vinegar, uh, I just don't get sick very often. No colds, no fevers, no COVID. Knock wood. That's great. I was reading up just a little bit of, about it, and a couple of things that I found interesting was one uh, that vinegar uh, in studies has been shown to increase feelings of fullness. So if you're trying to lose weight, that if you take vinegar along uh, alongside like a hard, high carb meal, you'll feel full faster and uh, take less into your body. So I found that to be kind of interesting. And then also this idea that there's a substance in unfiltered apple cider vinegar called mother. Do you know about mother? Uh, yes, I was going to talk about mother, but I think you should talk about this. I find this incredibly counterintuitive, but go ahead. From what I've read, it consists of strands of proteins, enzymes, and friendly bacteria that give the product a murky appearance. And uh, some people believe that the mother is responsible for most of its health benefits. So mostly I like that it's called mother. Uh, and it's interesting to, to me, it reminds me a little bit of like sourdough starter. Like it's just sort of like this... This it seems something very organic that it's just got a life of its own, and this thing is sprouting off shoots in other ways that are interesting. But uh, yeah, I don't know who's who's going to say no to having some mother in their life, right? And I'm thinking, you know, my mother's version of apple cider vinegar was chicken soup, so uh, you know, there's a little bit of something in the something somewhere, right? You know, I find it a little bit ironic though that um, Mr. Bragg he died of a heart attack. So uh, in the emergency room and where he was living in Miami Beach. Well, you got to go sometime, you know, it, it sounds like he was in Miami Beach. I'm picturing like uh, the, that uh, the Jewish gangster in the end of Godfather 2 in Miami, like he had a good life. So look, apple cider vinegar probably isn't going to hurt you. Dilute it down. For me, it's a big well. I feel better. 
try it out for yourself. These are anecdotal. Read up on it. There is some scientific proof, but I give it a well. Yeah, when I've used it in cooking, I've enjoyed it. I certainly can't imagine it being anything negative for you. And uh, it is interesting that this guy who it seems like a bit of a quack actually like came up with something that was legitimately uh, really, really healthy for you. So I guess even even a broken doctor is right twice a day or something like that. But this guy wasn't even a doctor. So I don't know where I'm going with this. Anyway, apple cider vinegar. Yeah, well, why not? Let's talk about a book that got a lot of acclaim and I have just recently read and I'm incorporating into my life. And it's called The Life-Changing Magic of Tidying Up, The Japanese Art of Decluttering and Organizing with Marie Kondo. Are you familiar with this book, Rob? I am indeed. Yeah, she got quite a bit of buzz off it over the past few years. And uh, there's a lot of ladies that I know who are big fans of hers, but I, I haven't met that many dudes who are. You know, I have been a bit of an OCD tidier upper probably since the womb when my mother was training me at a very early age. Well, you you might like this book then. I, I think that maybe let's zoom out. Some people may be asking on uh, hell and wellness. Why are you guys talking about tidying up? But I would argue that tidying up and your your stuff is actually very important to both your mental and physical health, that your your stuff is a manifestation of your mental health, that if you're you're living in a complete uh, slovenly existence as a hoarder, you know, sort of thing, that that's probably a pretty good sign that you're not in a great mental space either. And she even talks about this in the books. Uh, she says, it's a very strange phenomenon, but when we reduce what we own and essentially detox our house, it has a detox effect on our bodies as well. We amass material things for the same reason that we eat, to satisfy a craving. Buying on impulse and eating and drinking to excess are attempts to alleviate stress. From observing my clients, I've noticed that when they part with excess clothing, their, tenny, their tummies tend to slim down. When they discard books and documents, their minds tend to become clearer. When they reduce the number of cosmetics and tidy up the area around the sink and bath, their complexion tends to become clear and their skin smooth. So she's making an argument that when you clean your house, you're actually helping your body get healthier. How do you feel about that, Rob? I, I love this idea. I have to say that I was super excited when this book came out because it actually made me look not so, uh, as my mom would say, mashugana, a little crazy. Like I, I subscribe to this notion that slimming down, especially slimming down physically and your stuff and your clutter, every time I've moved in my life, I have been incredibly focused and intent on saying, what haven't I touched for at least two years or at least the time I've been in this house? Like, get rid of that shit. You don't need it. You'll never, it will weigh you down. So the fact that she's given voice to this just brought incredible joy to me. Well, you tapped right into a big part of it, which is that she wants you to touch all your objects, to actually hold them and to consider whether they spark joy. And that physical sort of judgment on things, I think is a, a really interesting part of what she advises. Um, the other thing, like for me, she's totally changed how I fold things, which I know sounds like a silly thing to to care about. But like I, all of a sudden I'm just folding things into squares and stacking them vertically and putting them in. I can't believe how much I fit in a drawer. I don't know what I've been doing my whole life. Also, she gave me permission, I think, on some level. I just needed someone to give me permission. Every time I've ever bought any piece of clothing that has the buttons the extra buttons, you know, I save them, I put them in a drawer and I've uh, collected dozens and dozens of these buttons. Rob, do you know how often in my life I've ever actually used one of these spare buttons? I'm going to assume never. 
Exactly. Why do I have all these buttons? Thank you, Marie Kondo, for telling me to throw away these goddamn buttons that I'm just never going to use. I don't know what I've been thinking this whole time. Yeah. And by the way, this idea of folding, mm. I am a self-professed folder. I love folding. I love folding my t-shirts. I love folding my underwear. If my wife takes my underwear out of the dryer and folds them in an inappropriate way, inappropriate for me, I fold my underwear. There's only so much space in my drawers that can fit my underwear. And I will say something you tapped into before, because uh, I live in New York City. And for however crazy and maniacal people who live in New York City are, I do think one of the ways we are a little bit zen is how we relate to stuff. Because we all have such small apartments. We have no storage. You know, we're, we're crammed in here. And New Yorkers actually have a very zen attitude towards material possessions that I think is actually very healthy that we don't get credit for because we're so messed up in so many other ways. But, you know, New Yorkers don't have a lot of stuff. And these, these people who have, you know, garages and homes with basements and attics, and they seem to be the ones who tend to hoard stuff even more. So I, I, I'm going to put a flag in the ground for New York City because we're having a tough year that, you know, that's one thing that we kind of get is, you know, a, a, a maybe a little bit healthier relationship to material possessions. And I think it is uh, not coincidental that uh, one of the fastest growing industries of the last 30, 40 years is the storage industry. Mm -hmm. The container store. Where were they? This is a very, very good industry to be investing in. I, I've actually known some people that have actually started storage uh, businesses and uh, apparently it's quite lucrative and uh, it's quite lucrative for all the reasons and all the sort of counterintuitive reasons why uh, Marie Kondo speaks to why uh, they probably shouldn't exist because why should we have these external spaces that we pay lots of money to put the shit that we never actually touch? Or even those bins that you put a bunch of stuff in and then you never open the bin again. It's like, why do you even have this? You know, like it's that uh, th that mentality of like you bought it once and then you, you feel guilty about throwing it away, which is another integral part of her. You need to thank things for their service. So when you throw something away, it's not, you know, admitting defeat or or something bad or wrong. You know, it's a it's a celebration that this thing was in your life and it did a good job and you thank it. And now you're you're letting it move on to its next phase so you can move on to your next phase. Yeah. You know, there is a little bit of a dark side, though, to throwing away the stuff. And I'm going to mm -hmm. admit that I have become a victim of this, perhaps maybe not a victim, but my mother used to throw away shit that she thought we didn't need anymore without consulting her kids. She just said, yeah, they don't need it. Throw it away. And I found when I got into relationship with my wife and we moved in together and we got married that I started sometimes slipping stuff out of her view and into the dumpster. She's like, Where's her, stuff? My, her stuff. And I'm like, where's my blah, blah, blah. And I was like, when was the last time you used your blah, blah, blah? She's like, I don't care that I was 16 years ago. That's my fucking shit. Don't touch my shit. By the way, I'd like to admit that I'm a reformed sort of, you know, unintended consequence of the Marie Kondo school of art of, you know, throwing shit away. But uh, there is a little bit of unintended consequence there. Well, Marie has similar stories from her youth of throwing stuff away that her family had and that they had similar reactions. And she's very much of like, 
you should not be throwing other people's stuff away, but you should model the behavior and then they see how happy and well you're doing and then they will emulate that. But I, good luck with that. I'm not sure how effective that is necessarily. And I will say there's, there's some uh, drawbacks to the condo approach. I'll, I'll say for one thing, I kind of like having clothes that maybe I haven't worn recently, but like then in a few years from now, I'm like, oh, I'm glad I have that. I'm going to throw that with this jacket and reinvent. So I've, I feel like from a fashion style standpoint, there's something to be said for like keeping some older stuff around and working in older pieces with newer pieces or having some vintage stuff or, or not necessarily having to wear something every week. Because I feel like if you follow her advice, you're probably going to have a pretty generic wardrobe and always be wearing the same things and not be taking a lot of chances or, or layering things together in interesting ways. You're probably going to be one of these, you know, Steve Jobs looking, I dress the same way all the time people. And what about, uh, what about like the family heirlooms, the family things that get passed down. I, I, today, in fact, I was watching Curb Your Enthusiasm season 10, uh, uh, great episode. And one of the pieces was on Larry going into his garage, going through his old stuff and finding a box with his mom's old mink stole coat. The moment Larry touched his mom's old uh, mink coat, he was full of memory. He was full of feeling. He was full of connection to his dead mother. Like, is that a good thing? Is it a bad thing? Should he keep it? Should he move on to the next house with that box of mink stole coats? It sparks joy. He should keep it. See, she's, she's on top of this. If it's sparking joy, hold on to it. But like um, that, I will say sometimes things don't spark joy for a while and then they spark joy later. But it, with Marie, that's just a learning experience, I guess. Um, I will say also that just reading the book, you know, I like her advice, but by the end, you start to realize that she is not a trustworthy narrator. It's almost like this Nabokov novel where at first you're like, oh, this is a book about cleaning up. And then by the end, you're like, oh, this person's insane. She's like hanging her sponges in the veranda. She's standing up her carrots vertically in the fridge. She's wearing a blazer in order to clean the house because she thinks it's a formal occasion anytime she tidies up she every time she walks into a home she greets it she's like oh hello i'm marie it's i'm like okay you're kind of a lunatic lady i don't i'm, I'm gonna fold my socks into a square but i don't think i'm gonna greet my house every time i come home so i just gotta throw that out there too so basically marie has turned her ocd-ness into a career she did an amazing job of it right what an incredible thing so I, i'm gonna le leave us with one more section from it uh, because I think it, it gets in why we would even talk about this. Uh, there are three approaches we can take toward our possessions. Face them now, face them sometime, or avoid them until the day we die. The choice is ours. But I personally believe it is far better to face them now. If we acknowledge our attachment to the past and our fear for the future by honestly looking at our possessions, we will be able to see what is really important to us. To I, me, that that's true about life, memories, you know, our past. Our, you know, she's talking about stuff, but I think she's talking about a lot more, and that's why I give the life changing magic of tidying up a well. Well, I I would agree with Marie's framework for uh, either tidying up or living life. Uh, I think there's probably not one size fits all. You know, one person's mink stole is another person's pita. You know, let's go spray paint on it. But at that said. I am a subscriber to tidying up and keeping organized and keeping clean. Uh, for me, it's a big fat well.
Thanks for listening to Hell and Wellness. I'm Rob Kramer. And I'm Matt Ruby. You can subscribe to the show wherever you listen to podcasts, and you can leave voice messages for us at anchor.fm slash Wellness. That's anchor.fm slash Wellness. You can also see all the shows there. And you can email us at helenwellness at gmail.com. And if you remember, please uh, rate us and review us on uh, Apple Podcasts. Say something nice. Thanks for listening. This podcast is produced by Stereoactive Media. 